We are in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians today. This is our third, uh, third time through this, and I, hopefully we can finish uh, chapter 1 today. We, we saw uh, many things, but let's read the passage first, knowing this, this is God's word. And then we'll, I'll do you some, reminding you some of the things we did, and then we'll continue today. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what matter of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us, And of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were in samples to all that that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. May God add his blessing to his word. We looked a couple weeks ago on Easter Sunday of the idea that when Jesus rose from the dead, Something amazing happened. On while, while Jesus was still hanging on the cross and the earthquake quaked and the light went out of the sky, graves were open and saints walked among the people in the town like they used to. The most shocking thing, that life comes from death. God turned the world upside down. Everything you were taught from the earliest time, God has basically snickered at and taken weakness and made it the greatest of strength, took death and made it the only hope of life. And when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it wasn't that we rose from the dead because there were people raised from the dead before Jesus raised from the dead. What it does is it gives people who love God the absolute sure knowledge that you're safe. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, what God was doing, he was vindicating him. Jesus told those people who he was. It was unmistakable that he was saying, I am God Almighty. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it forced everyone to acknowledge There is no one that can raise themselves from the dead. The only God did that. And Jesus himself said, I'm the one that does it. I lay down my life and I raise it up again. He brought himself alive. And when God did that, because Jesus 
is alive forever, but he was alive as a man forever. That is what, that is, what is unmistakable. For Jesus to be a man, to where, when we see Jesus, he will be a man. God raised the man Jesus from the dead. And that is our hope. Because if Jesus raised from the dead, then what happened the moment we trusted him is that we raised from the dead. And when that happens, when someone who is dead stops being dead and starts being alive, it's an unmistakable difference. There's nobody in the world that cannot tell the difference between something dead and something alive. And so Paul spent a very short time. As I read chapter 16 and 17 of Acts, it looks like he spent an afternoon that he met some people, he he went to the river, there was a lady there who trusted the Lord, he baptized them at the river, and she invited him to his house, and while they were on the way to the house, a riot broke out, he was flogged publicly and put in prison, and then told to leave the next morning. In the way I read it, he only had an afternoon to share in this town. And he told the people, according to Acts 17, the gospel of the resurrection, that Jesus rose from the dead, but that he had to die, that he must needs suffer, is what King James says, and die and be raised, that it was essential. It was essential for him to do that. So we looked the first week that Paul then is writing a letter to the Thessalonians because As he escaped from Thessalonica and then escaped from Berea and then escaped and kept going and had to go to Athens and then had to leave Athens, Timothy, who he sent back to the Thessalonians, has found him in Corinth, which is down on the coast of Greece, and said, they're alive. All of these people are godly and fearing the Lord and meeting together and worshiping Jesus. And Paul, in rejoicing, and Silas in rejoicing and Timothy in rejoicing sat down together and wrote a letter to the Thessalonians. And Thessalonians, this is what we read. There isn't a more comforting passage because what he's saying is, I see God in you. I see life in you. I see grace in you. You are not dead. You're alive. You have never been taught. You've never been taught. There's so much I want to teach you. There's so much you've got to know. But you, I'm not worried about you. God's got you. God took you from death to life as you listened to my gospel. Right? There was power of the Holy Spirit through Paul's preaching because the gospel is powerful. The gospel was written by God, and God was the one who set that up to happen. Do you see He said, you can't go into Asia. You can't go into Bithynia. You must go into Macedonia because I've established that you must preach so that the people will come to life there. And there were people that came. There were many people that didn't come to life there. There were many people on the first day of the Philippians that no one came to life. Where do you think the crowd came from? Where do you think the riot came from? Of course there were people who don't, and there will always be. But God set up appointments and saves sinners and he saves sinners through the gospel and the gospel is powerful the most powerful thing 
in the universe. So we looked in his commendations. He was thrilled to write this letter. And he said, I pray for you every day. I pray for you all the time. And I'm, my prayers are thank you, God. Thank you. Because look what you did. Look, these people who were idolaters, these people who, who worshipped idols, these people have faith. And it's showing in their works. They're doing something. They're working. And it's because they believe you. And they have a labor of love. They're working for love that somehow you've put love in their hearts. And it's eternal love that is doing something in their day. They're, they're growing. They're sharing the gospel. And they're being effective. And they have patience in hope. And that is what we saw on Easter. That that is an unmistakable evidence of someone raised from the dead. Now, last week, Paul then says one of the most shocking, disturbing things in verse 4. Look at this. Verse 4 says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. He's saying, without a doubt, you belong to God. There's no way around it. Only dead people would act like dead people, and only live people would act like live people. You are alive. You are, you are serving God with reverence and fear. You are a Christian. You belong to him. And that's the highest commendation you could ever give anyone. That you would look at someone in all honesty and say, from what I see in your life, the Holy Spirit lives in you, is sanctifying you, is leading you to himself. You are gaining in wisdom of God, and one day you will be glorified in heaven. What, what could you say to anybody that would be higher praise than, than you belong to God? And he said, he, Paul was just like shaking. I can't believe it. You're alive. I, I, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. And look what you are. Look, you can see it yourself. I can see it. You can see it. You can see it. Here's Paul. The doctor, the PhD, the guy who knows every minutia of theology, talking to Christians who had one day of evangelism with essentially one sermon that said Jesus rose from the dead, and that is all they've ever had. These are people, I'm sure, are practicing every sin in the book, but their hearts are alive and they know God. Okay? When you see a little baby, you don't have, you don't go, oh, how much trouble you're going to get in in your life. That's not the first thing you think. Maybe the second thing you think. It's not the first thing you think. You just think, oh my goodness. And so when, when they scream in Walmart, anybody that's got children, they don't care. They love it. When, it, when the baby is learning his voice and screaming his voice, that's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. Now, when they're 20, you grab them, okay? Probably try to, try to do it before they're 20. You grab it, but no, you have hope in your heart. That's what Paul, Paul's like, I'm sure you've got every imaginable kind of problem. I'm sure you do, but hallelujah, you're alive. And so how can you be sure? So we ended in the middle of verse 5. So let me read verse 5 again. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Did you see it said our gospel? Our gospel. 
the good news to me and the good news to you. The same good news that I depend on is the same good news you depend on. Do you see? There's no hierarchies of Christians. You don't say, well, Billy Graham is up here and I'm down here. No, no, no. It doesn't work that way. If I have only Christ's record, no work of mine, if I only have Christ, if all I have is Christ and that's all I have to commend me before God, then I have Christ commending me before God. It does not matter that I'm still halfway tied up in my grave clothes, that I have not fully reached sanctification. That will take all of my life and then the crossing the Jordan before I will ever fully say, oh my goodness, I'll never sin again. That's, that will be in the future. But right now I'm growing and I'm learning and I'm loving and I'm walking that path up the mountain that God may teach us. And so it says our gospel, and it wasn't just in words, that it wasn't an intellectual pursuit. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a, something, a speech, Okay, it wasn't, let's have a speech or let's have a debate. It's not, can you, if you are really, really a good orator and you can speak beautifully and, and you never get lost and you can say everything right and maybe you're good enough, you can convince me that this guy didn't kill whatever or you convince me that he was innocent or, or guilty if you're that good. But that's not what a preacher of the gospel does. The preacher of the gospel is just a guy who simply takes the bomb and takes the pin out of the hand grenade and then throws it at you. That's what a preacher of the gospel does. The preacher of the gospel doesn't get credit for the hand grenade, doesn't get credit for its effectiveness, only does it or doesn't do it. And as you share it, there's power in the entire event. There's power because it's our gospel. It's the same power that's the gospel to Paul and the same power that's the gospel to the people Paul was talking to. There isn't any different. God gets the glory for both, always. There is never somebody exalted. There's no one, there's no saints, I'm sorry. We're all saints. Called to be saints. Why? Because you you achieved something. No, absolutely not. But because the gospel is effective and it's not just words. Now I have to say, it's it's no less than words. Without the word of God, there is no life. There is no growth. There is no salvation. God's word is there eternally, must be there. And so when, when someone wants to share with you and they're sharing all the weird stuff, and you're like, what are you talking about? And they have gone, they've left the gospel to tell you about their philosophies. That's when you slam the door in a West Virginia style of, yeah, I'll come see you. Okay? Then you just slam the door real quietly like West Virginians do. That's what we do because we're polite. But this says it wasn't just words, but it wasn't only words, but it was words. But there was power in those words. Do you see it? So there was, a, there was power, and the power was the gospel power released. So what's the gospel? Well, he had already preached the gospel that Jesus must need suffer. He had to suffer. Why did he have to suffer? Because there was a condemnation that needed to be paid for. He had to suffer. And he had to die. And he had to be raised. It was all must. It must suffer. I must go to Jerusalem. I must be raised on the third day. Because God intended to save you. He intended. He intended 
It was his intention that you, that his wrath would be turned away from you and his loving face towards you. That is his intention. And the only way that that could ever happen, the only way that that propitiation could be made where God was no longer wrathful with you is that all of that wrath was poured upon perfect Jesus. That was the gospel that he preached. He had to suffer because otherwise you would have to suffer. That God is furious with your life. That's the, that's the first part of the gospel. I'm sorry that's the first part of the gospel, but there is no gospel. If you do not know your offense between a holy, before a holy God, there is no grace. To know that there has been a provision made doesn't mean anything and you wouldn't want it. There's nothing for you. That you've already been condemned must be in your complete knowledge. You must know, I am damned. What does that mean? I don't even know what that means. I'm terrified at even thinking of what that means. But it must be true. And then when you hear that Christ Jesus was was struck with the rod of justice that hung over your head. That was struck on him. Suddenly you're like, are you serious? And that he had to suffer, and that he had to die, and that he had to be raised so that you would know that that justice went on him and only God's love is towards you. You have to know that. A saved person knows that God is merciful to them. A saved person knows God loves me. He doesn't hate me, though he knows my sins. He knows them all. He knows them better than I know them. I've sinned infinitely, and I only know finitely some of the sins I've made. I know they're bad, but I have no idea of what offense before a perfectly clean God would be. And all, But Jesus knows it. He knows what that condemnation was, and that's what the gospel was. And when he preached that gospel, those people simply just said, Yes. Now he, repeat, he preaches faith and he preaches repentance. That whatever's in your hand, if you are going to grab the gospel as a life ring, it doesn't matter what's in your hand. Some of the people have had the most horrible things in their hands. To look into your past just makes you want to vomit. You're like, are you serious? God would save me? And you look what you've done. But repentance is nothing more than throwing it away and grabbing the gospel. That Jesus, because he suffered in my place, is able, for no other reason than that, than God to be favorably disposed towards me forever. And you grab it. That is repentance and that's faith. And then you have others, equal in number that never did the horrible, awful, never was notorious in any way, who are good and upstanding and have always mows your yard and always pays your taxes and always says thank you and never, ever bad. I promise you, you must throw that away. If you are going to hold the gospel, whatever's in your hand that you think is commending you before God, that God would like you because you do this or did do this or didn't do that, You must throw it away. That's repentance. Repentance is dropping whatever's in your hand and holding the gospel for dear life. And these people, on one sermon, did that. And they are alive. I was, my blood ran cold. This was, I think, yes, this was Friday. 
in school. We have a kind of a, at a lunch period where the kids are free and they're all talk, kind of talking to each other. And I had two non-believers talking together. Um, one of them is a practice, practicing witch, if that helps you to give an idea in your mind. In any case, they were talking about ethics. Would you, you know, if you, if you were the trained engineer and you could save the three people or five people, you know, what would you do? They, they were just wasting time, like teenagers waste time. In any case, one of, the, one of the kids said something about the Christian faith. You could see that he'd been to Sunday school. You could see the Sunday school lessons kind of coming out. And he said something about God, and, and this girl said, Oh, it doesn't matter how you say it. You, if you want to say, if you trust me, I won't burn you alive. She said, in my mind, that's the same as trust me or I'll burn you alive. There's no difference. She said, who could possibly turn to anybody that would say, trust me or I'll burn you alive? I'm not interested. And in, in my, I grabbed the desk so tight that I thought I put fingernail, fingernail marks in the bottom of the wood. And in my mind, I'm like, you have a wrong premise. You're wrong premise. You think that somehow you're neutral and that God is making you a threat and an offer. But that's not it at all. You are already a condemned criminal, already sentenced to die for just crimes against an infinitely dignified person that you've offended every breath of your life. And he gave you a way that that damnation would be put upon God himself instead of you. Do you see what the gospel is? Do you see the difference? Do you see what a human mind can't grab and what, a, what an enlightened mind isn't any smarter of a person? But they're like, why can't you see that? It's like the light coming through the windows to someone who can see and the light not coming through the windows to the blind person who can't see it. It's exactly the same. So Paul is not just talking about the power of the gospel. He's talking about the power of the gospel to them and to him. As he spoke, there was the Holy Spirit working. And as as the writers wrote, the Holy Spirit was working. And as the hearers heard, the Holy Spirit was working. There's only one worker. God is the only worker. He's the only one that does work. And he, that it had power, but he said, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So there's more than just the word itself. And there's more than, believe it or not, just the Holy Spirit's power, though he's the only one working. Paul, in that same verse that's calling full attention to the gospel, is calling attention to himself. Do you see it in verse 5? Can you put verse 5 back, please? It says, And in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were for your sake. Do you see it? As you share the gospel, your life has already preached the gospel. And now when you preach with words, the Holy Spirit is willing, not as a reward, but because you are, you are bending towards God. And the writer was bending towards God. And the speaker was bending towards God. And the listener was willing to bend towards God, had eyes to see and ears to hear. Suddenly the Holy Spirit then just whooshes across and the wind blows where it wants and it comes from nowhere and goes to nowhere 
and the trees bend over. I, I just am amazed. The holiness, the, the, the holy life of a, of a simple person can be very effective in the salvation of a person. You don't think that it's because that person was good. But oh my goodness, a person who's willing for God to get glory and is not trying to gain anything for himself. When he speaks the gospel, that gospel explodes and does something. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 6. And you have become followers of us. Now, do you understand? If they met for three hours or five hours or nine hours or whatever, what does be followers of us mean? They didn't know them well enough. I w- if, I, if I stayed at your house for a full day, I wouldn't know you well enough that I could be imitators of you. But what Paul is saying is look at you. You live the same way I live. And more than that, you live the same way Jesus lives. Do you see it? And you've become followers of us and of the Lord. You are Christ-like in the way you do things. You're Christ-like the way you speak to someone. You're Christ-like the way you uh, deal with a decision. You're Christ-like in how you live your life. That's what I hope to do, Paul's saying. And that's what Jesus did. You have become imitators of us and imitators of Christ, having received the word in much affliction. If you remember, the very day Jason is hauled off to the the court and is put in prison, hours after he became a Christian, he was already suffering for the faith. That's much affliction. Do you see it? But with much joy, and that joy is the Holy Spirit. And it's not happiness. It's not happenstance. It's not my life's going great, just the way I would have designed it. No, it is, I don't know why, but God has given me joy in this. I'm joyous. I feel like my life is just what I would hope it could be if God would love me. Martin Luther said, if I were convinced, perfectly convinced, that all my sins were gone, I would stand on my head for joy. Just the thought of it would make me just want to do somersaults. That that could be me, that I would have peace with God. That's a joy. And whatever affliction, that is joy in the middle of your affliction. I want to read you, this is from 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 4. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power of God be not of us. Can you put this up? 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, verse 9, but not forsaken. We're cast down, but not destroyed, verse 10. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our body. For we live, are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death works in us, but life in you. Verse 13. We have the same spirit of faith, according to as it is written, I believed, and therefore I have spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak, knowing that he that raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also by Jesus. 
and present us with you. Do you see it? Do you see what afflictions mean? Afflictions mean we are persecuted but never destroyed. That we're hated but we're not in despair. That it does not matter what God is forcing us to do right now. God already knows the end. He knows what is going to happen and he knows how it's going to end. God has got it. And the, the, because Christ came to the grave, I'm assured Christ came, that I came out of the grave. And if I came out of the grave, I can deal with today. If today is my last day, I can deal with whatever it is. And God will get me all the way through it and use it for his glory and for other people's benefit and for my comfort. Because you don't give a child a ticket until it's right time to get on the airplane because they'll tear it up. They'll put their gum in it, okay? You give it to them right before they give it to the stewardess. When you are forced to deal with something very, very hard, the God who loves you will give you exactly what you need. You don't have to to pre-suffer. Let tomorrow be tomorrow. Today's okay. Don't pre-suffer. Don't pre-think about it. God will give you grace and have grace. You will have grace. And it says to have affliction yet joy is something I think that we could spend the rest of our lives on. That, that's something that's inexhaustible in ten sentences. You can't explore it that far. But it is something that Paul is saying, you're like us. You're being afflicted, but you have joy, just like we're afflicted and we have joy. The apostles, that's the offscouring of the world that everyone despises as the lowest, as the, the ones on the last of the parade who are about to die in the arena. We're the ones paraded, but God has said that we will triumph. God has declared to triumph his truth through us, and that's it. So they watched the lives of Paul and Timothy. They they saw that they were already in trouble. They saw the crowd that came from, from Philippi. They already knew that they were despised. They knew it, and they counted the cost. These people counted the cost. They knew that to be an, a Christian was to be unpopular. They were willing to pay it because they wanted that field. They saw that field. They were like, I've got to have it. I've got to have it. I've got to have it. What do I own? What is in my hand? Is it have anything? What, whatever it is, I'll sell it all and buy that field. That's what a Christian does. And he sees it as he's looking at a simple man with his problems and with life happening to him all over the time. But yet, where did the joy come from? And it's not false. And you've all known 100,000 false-joyed Christians. The fake joy, the, the saccharine joy, that's not joy. Joy comes from inside. It's the, it's the river of life that comes out of your heart that you don't control. You don't determine what people see. They see real. You're faking it up. You're dressing the windows, but they're watching your life. They can tell, and that's an evidence of God. Brethren, beloved, the elect, that is evidence. So Jesus said, verily I say to you, this is in John 12, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. That is the speaker. Will you share the gospel? Then that will be you. You're the corn of wheat that must fall into the ground and die. And if you're willing, the Holy Spirit has already written the scriptures. 
And the Holy Spirit has already made the ears of some people attentive. And they will use you too. So 7 says, so you are in samples of all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Everybody that believes looks to you and like, that's how it is. That's what a church looks like. That's a healthy church. That's what health means. Does it mean they're rich? No, they were in, they were in terrible situation. This is from first, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is writing to the Corinthians about Thessalonica. He said, moreover, brethren, uh, do you with the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how in the great trial of affliction and uh, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded into the riches of their liberality? Verse 3, for to their power I bear record, yea, beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying with us much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take it upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave of themselves to the Lord and then unto us by the will of God. They're poor. These are the, the worst, the lowest, the bottom. This is not, this, this is not, the, this is not the establishment. But their love made them generous. Their love wanted them to do something for God. I want to repay God's kindness through my actions. Please take this. To take something from someone, it's, it's astonishing. But that's who these Thessalonians were. And Paul is not false when he's saying, I'm so proud. You're alive. Look at you. You're alive. So look at verse 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place to your God, to faith that God were to spread abroad, that we don't need to say anything. Every place. Every place. Every place. They shared the gospel with every place. They shared the gospel to their families. They shared the gospel in their town. They shared the gospel to other places. If he's saying every place, he means every place that's known, that there's people talking about people from your church in all the cities of the world. How? A poor bunch of people, a small bunch of people, an uneducated bunch of people, an untaught bunch of people? Yes, that's how it works. You love. Look at the sequence. Go back to verse 5. The gospel came to you. You have your Bibles. Have your Bibles. Don't use this as a crutch. Okay? Verse 5. The gospel came to you. All right? Do you see it? Look in verse 6. You received the word. You see it? It came to you. You received it. Look at verse 8. The word sounded forth from you. Do you see it? So, so how does the gospel spread? It's, thought, it's for, through faithful, credible witnesses. Credible. So that you truly think, I trust him. They're not, they're not faking me. This is trustworthy. Okay? God's word is received into hearts that the Holy Spirit opened. It's God's work. He opens your heart, and then you receive it. And then amidst afflictions, you have joy that displays the Holy Spirit's graces in your life that others then see that. And then when you speak, there's something to it. It's not blah, blah, blah. It's not just, it's not fraud. It's not fraudulent. Is that amazing? That's us. This is not just Thessalonica. This is us. This is how it works. Good verse 9. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had among you. Paul has to be self-centered because 
Paul is Paul. He's, he, all he sees is Paul. He said, all I knew is that I shared the gospel with a bunch of people who were staring at me. And then I left. And that's all I ever knew. I, I maybe saw some evidence at the moment, but most of what's happened to you is since I've left. Since I've left, you've got, you went alive. Like the, the flame flickered into flame. Okay? And it said, it said, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living true God. Right? Do you see the idols? Your idols, my idols, I, we have millions of idols. There's a trillion things that I put in front of God. One inch of cloth would cover your eyes and you couldn't see an entire landscape. Because that's an idol. It's that close. It's so close that you can't see something that's better. And so you turned from idols, just like this, you turned from idols in order to turn to the Lord. That's what you did. And he said, he said, that gives me confidence. Do you understand, Mr. Thessalonians? I have to go to the next hard place tomorrow. And if you did not tell me that God is actually causing life, then I would get so discouraged that I wouldn't do anything at all. Do I just want to get my head bashed in with rocks? I've been, I've been stoned how many times? I've been beaten how many times? The list of things that Paul was truly afflicted in, how, he wasn't Superman. He was a guy. He was a guy. And he, he wasn't Mr. Tough Guy. He was Mr. Library Nerd. Do you understand? But yet he was tough enough to take it, take it, take it, take it. Why? Because God made him tough? Yes, but how does God make you tough? He lets you see sometimes what God is doing behind you. That's what he's doing. The fact that these people are alive made Paul able to do it one more time. Is that amazing? So even, even talking about the Holy Spirit, Paul talks about himself. Even talking about them, Paul's talking about himself. And Paul is not being self-centered. Paul is saying this is how it is because if the word is sounding forth from you, you're going to have a hard day, day after day after day. And you're going to need this too. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus. Do you see? He went right back to the circle, back to the resurrection, and you're going to wait. As sure as Jesus was raised from the dead is as sure as he's coming again. And to wait for him purifies it. Titus 2 says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing. That blessed hope. To look for the glorious appearing. It is imminent. It's certain. It is not pie in the sky. Jesus rose from the dead. And how can I tell? Because wicked people now live godly lives. That's enough. That's enough for the whole world. There's nobody else required to tell me that Jesus is not coming again. Why? Because I used to be wicked. That's why. You were probably worse than me. This is John 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows not because it didn't know him. Behold, we, beloved, we are now the sons of God, and yet it doth not appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we, he shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope purifies himself. That knowledge, that knowledge of his return is what purifies me. And that purifying of me makes my life holier and it makes my walk more consistent and it makes my witness more powerful. That's how it works.
And then the last, which delivered us from the wrath to come, that, that sword of justice fell on Christ. And forever and always, it will never fall on us. Will that raise your blood pressure? Yes, that's all it takes.